my new grandson was in town this weekend. Isn't that sweet? Name's Alexander. I should call him the magnet because whenever he's around, he draws the entire family like a magnet into his presence. All that to say, we were together a lot this weekend. And being all together, I had a bit of an existential moment. Not a crisis, don't worry, but an existential moment. As I reflected on my fatherhood, I felt sorry for my children, that they have me as a father. Now, I don't say that so you'll respond, no, Craig, you're not a bad father. I I know I'm not a bad father. There are worst fathers. Should I start naming names? Just kidding. I know my children love me and they know that I love them, but when I see my adult children, I realize that they have had to overcome the kind of father that I was and that I am. That isn't to say they don't love me. They do, but they also know me, which means in addition to their love, there is irritation. There is frustration. There's disappointment. There are unmet expectations, and I believe that there is more than just a little bit of embarrassment. (laughs) Please imagine having me for father. It means that there are circumstances when they would run to me, and there are circumstances in which they would run from me. There are times when they would want to be with me, and times that they would rather not be around me means there were times they loved having me for a father and probably times when they wished that someone else was their dad. Not because of who they are, but because of who I am. Not because I'm unloving, but because I am a human. And so they have to overcome or deal with my weaknesses as a father. And every one of us in this room is in exactly the same situation. Because no one in this room had a perfect father. And I believe that this is one of our greatest hindrances when it comes to prayer. We equate our heavenly father with our earthly father. And we thoughtlessly impose on our heavenly father the feelings and the beliefs that we have about our earthly one. And so you and I have to overcome those things. When we think about prayer, because prayer is a byproduct of a right relationship. Prayer is a a byproduct of a right relationship. So we must see our Heavenly Father rightly in order that we might pray more. And that's what I pray we'll see this morning as we come once again to Matthew chapter 6. Once again to the Sermon on the Mount. I want to ask you if you have your Bibles to take them now and turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. And when you found Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus is speaking. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, 
that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that even now in this moment You know our needs before we ask them. You know our needs better than we know them ourselves. And so we pray now, Spirit of God, that you would take your truth and apply it to those greatest needs in each of us that are here present this morning. Spirit of God, we pray that you would take the truth that we need, apply it to our hearts and lives so that we are changed people, so that we see you rightly, Father God, and seeing you rightly, that we might pray more. For we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So it's the third week that we are going to consider prayer. And we come again to this topic for a third week because prayer is vitally important for anyone who says, I am a Christian. I am a disciple. I am a follower of Christ. If you make that claim, prayer must be central to your life. And we know that's true because for the last two weeks, we've seen that here in this teaching on prayer, in this Sermon on the Mount, at the very center of the center of the center of this sermon, Jesus teaches us about prayer. What's he telling us in placing this teaching about prayer in this spot? He's teaching us that prayer is central to our lives. But prayer won't be central to our lives if our relationship with God is not right. Again, as we saw last week, Jesus uses the word Father 17 times. 17 times He uses the word Father in the Sermon on the Mount. The concentration of those references to God as our Father are found right here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. What's Jesus telling us? That prayer is relational between a father and his children. And so you and I know that prayer must never be rote or thoughtless. Prayer must be based on a right relationship. Again, last week we saw where the hypocrites prayed. On the busiest corners of the city, where the most people could see them, that indicated that their relationship with God was not right. Because the audience for their prayers was not God Himself. The audience for their prayer, it was the crowd that gathered around them to watch and listen. The hypocrite's prayer was just a show. In fact, Jesus implies here that if there was not an audience to watch them and listen to them, then hypocrites don't pray at all. Because they have no interest in an authentic relationship with God and no desire to be alone with Him. This morning, we're going to talk not about where they prayed, but about what they prayed. Because what 
is prayed is also an indication of a wrong relationship. Look in verse 7. Jesus says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And so now Jesus widens the scope a little bit. And he goes beyond just the hypocrites, Jews who were supposed to know the Lord and love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but did not. He now includes the Gentiles or the pagans or the heathens, depending on which translation you're reading. In Jesus' day, the world was divided into two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles or everybody else. You were one or the other. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. So to to say it plainly here, Jesus found the prayer life of the world into which he came in disarray. God, of course, always has his faithful remnant, those who do love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, those who are faithful to him, those who do pray authentically before him. But for the most part, the religious leaders and the spiritual guides were not among that faithful remnant. They should have had a right relationship with God, but did not. The Gentiles had no relationship with God at all. The gods they may have worshipped were not gods of relationship because they were not gods at all. You do realize, don't you, that there is only one true and living God. And Yahweh is His name. There are no other gods. But the pagans tried to establish a relationship that could never be established because it would only ever be one-sided. Their side, the human side, their attempt to get to God. Verse 7 tells us they attempted to appease their God, to put their God in a good mood, to make their God favorably disposed to answer their prayers by heaping up empty phrases. For they think they will be heard for their many words. They're wrong in their thinking. And so they do what is completely ineffective for reaching their ends. That describes us very often, doesn't it? We're wrong in our thinking about God. And so we act in wrong ways. Well, Jesus is about to teach his disciples how to pray. The Lord's Prayer. The Gentiles, the pagans, they had no such instruction. And so they were left to their own devices to figure out what prayer should look like. And so they went on and on with empty phrases, meaningless repetition, or babbling, again, depending on the translation you're using, to accomplish their end. Perhaps it was something of an incantation like abracadabra. Or maybe you prefer the sweeter Disney version, bibbity, bobbity, boo. Yeah. Kind of sounds like babbling in our day. Sound like babbling in Jesus' day too. Jesus says, don't do it. You don't need to do it. It isn't effective if you do it. And so I think of Proverbs chapter 16 here. It says, the heart 
of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. God's way, judicious words, gracious words, not empty phrases, not babbling. But to the pagans, babbling seemed the way to pray. It seemed to them that this was the way to relate to God. And the end of following their way would not end in a good place for them. And God wants us to know that. And so he includes in his word a very vivid, dramatic demonstration of this truth. It's the story, and you know it well, of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel with the pagan prophets of Baal. Isaiah had had enough of the faithlessness of God's people. And Isaiah had had enough of their following the example of their wicked king and wicked queen. And here were God's people worshiping false gods. And so there's going to be a showdown on the mountain. The story is recorded for us in 1 King chapter 18. And Elijah says to the people, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is, follow Him. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the, the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people said, well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. And so they took the bull that was given them, prepared it. You know this story, don't you? Isn't this not the best story? And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. And there was no sound. And no one answered as they leapt around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, saying, Shout louder, for he is God. Perhaps he's in deep in thought or occupied or on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and cut themselves with knives and lances, as was their custom, until the blood gushed out upon them. Midday passed, and they kept on raving until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response no one answered. No one paid attention. Please imagine. From morning till noon, from noon till evening, they called on and on and on. Louder and louder and louder. No answer. They cut themselves 
till their blood flowed. No answer. Now it's Elijah's turn. The time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah approaches the altar and said, here's his prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and it licked up the water in the trench. Is that a great story? It's full of contrasts for us to see the length of the prayers of the prophets all day stands in contrast to the length of Elijah's prayer. Maybe 30 seconds. The activities of the false prophets shouting louder and louder, raving, leaping, cutting themselves stands in contrast to Elijah's simply approaching the altar and praying. But the most important contrast for us to note is the relationship that's on display. How must these prophets have viewed their God? What kind of God must they believe Him to be if they believe that this is what is required of them in order to get an answer to their prayers? Was He distant? So distant that they had to shout louder and louder and louder? So that he could hear? Was he distracted with other things so that they had to leap up and down and rave and wave to get his attention? Look down here. Look down here. Was he simply petulant? Did he have his arms crossed and his back turned toward them? Did he have to be cajoled into answering them? Did he have something more important to do? Was he indisposed? Was he angry? Did he need to be appeased? Is that why they cut themselves so that their blood flowed? Who knows? Because their God never answered. So they must not have gotten it right. Jesus reminds us that the pagans were wrong in their thinking, which led to wrong acting and wrong praying. Clearly, he's correct as we see the behavior on the mountain. This is what the human imagination concocts in order to relate to God. That's what we come up with. Oh, this is what we must do to relate to God. Well, thank God He has shown us another way. You thankful for that? A way that we could have never imagined on our own. Elijah knows that way. He's confident in God. Confident that He's the one and only true living God and that He is indeed powerful. He's confident that God is everywhere present and sovereign over all things at all times. The true God is not distracted by something else that prevents Him from giving full attention to Elijah in this very moment. He does, need, does not need to be appeased or cajoled into answering. The Lord stands ready to answer the prayer of His faithful servant. Elijah has a right relationship with God. 
And that's why this moment is so concise and so beautiful and so effective. It did not need to be more. The question is, did Jesus practice what he preached? At least when it came to prayer. Luke tells us that Jesus went out on the mountain and prayed all night long. Is he not like the prophets of Baal here? They prayed all day. Jesus prayed all night. Of course he did. Because the length of Jesus' prayer was indicative that he had a right relationship with God. Not a wrong one. God said from heaven multiple times, This is my son whom I love in whom I am well pleased. Of course Jesus wanted to spend a long time in prayer because he was in right relationship with the Father. Jesus did what he did on this earth. He lived a life of obedience. He went to the cross for this reason. He says it himself. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. A right relationship led to extended times of prayer, not because extended times of prayer were required, but because time and prayer together was loved by the Father and loved by the Son who loved one another. Jesus prayed all night long because He was in right relationship with the Father. Someone could also ask, or suggest that Jesus only spoke the words we've read this morning on the mountain because he was safe, because there was no risk to his life in this moment. But what happened at the end of his life when his horrendous death on the cross was just hours away, when his own heart was sorrowful unto death, did Jesus, in that moment, practice what he preached? Did Jesus not repeat himself? Did he not go to the Father three times and pray, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me? Was Jesus begging the Father? Was one time not enough? Was Jesus hoping that he would be heard by the Father? For his many words, perhaps Jesus thought that falling to his face would get the attention of his father and convince him of his sincerity. Yes, Jesus repeated himself. Yes, Jesus fell on his face in prayer, but not to manipulate or to cajole a father who was unwilling to hear him. He fell on his face and he repeated himself in prayer so that his will in his human nature would line up with the will of his Father. A will that Jesus knew to be good and perfect and well-pleasing so that Jesus says, that's the will I want. I think that the human nature of Jesus so dreaded the cross that the only thing that kept him heading toward it was prayer. Because he needed to be connected 
to his father. And he sought with all his heart and all his strength and all his soul to bend his will to the will of God. Because he knew in his humanity, his will was not in line with the will of God. In his humanity, he did not want to die on the cross. But the longing of his soul was to do what God wanted, not what he wanted. And that's why he prayed. Because he knew that in prayer, his will would line up with the Father's will. And that's what prayer is all about. And that's why prayer is so vital for each of us here, for everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. It's so that we can get our wills in line with God's will. You know why? Because there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. That's not the end we want for ourselves. It's not the end we want for others, and so we pray so that our way becomes the right way, which is God's way, so that we're not led astray by our own hearts, so that we're not seeking to satisfy our own desires that are so often in opposition to God's desires for us. And so we pray, don't we, again and again and again until our wills become one with His will. Jesus' teaching here is not to set a standard for the length that our prayers should be. It isn't as if He wants them to be short and sweet so He can be done with us and move on to something or someone else. Pray that you are really listening this morning to what we sang, that Jesus ever lives above for me to intercede. That's straight out of Scripture. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He's able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He isn't trying to move on to something else or someone else more important. He lives forever to intercede for you. Is that good news? And for me, Jesus isn't trying to be done with you. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Our prayer of confession this morning, 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus says that the Gentiles believed that many words were necessary to be heard. The fear is that they would not be heard by their God. And so they use many words. And so we know this is all about relationship. And that's what Jesus is moving us toward in verse 8. Look in verse 8. Jesus says, do not be like them. And one commentator points out that the, the tense of the word Jesus uses here normally is used only to express commands that are particularly 
solemn. In other words, Jesus is very solemn, very serious in our knowing that we cannot pray in the same way that the pagans wrongly pray. We cannot adopt their practices. We cannot incorporate them into our attitudes about prayer or about our God. Because our relationship with God, our Father, must be totally different than the relationship they have with their gods. Jesus continues in verse 8. For your Father knows, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Our Father is intimately involved in our lives. And so this prayer stands in contrast. The pagans who think they'll be heard for their many words, words that inform God, words that manipulate God. One commentator writes, instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs, they think they must badger a reluctant deity into taking notice of them. So I pray that you and I Never make that same mistake. I pray that we never imagine that God, our Father, has His arm raised in judgment against us, ready to strike us, while Jesus, the loving one, the gracious one, speaks to the Father, calms Him down, so that God begrudgingly lowers His hand against us and reluctantly forgives us. That's not the picture. Never forget John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. The cross was God's idea. And God, though three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He's one God working in beautiful harmony with a common will and a common purpose. When Jesus intercedes for us, He is not trying to convince the Father to do something the Father does not want to do. God wants to forgive. That's why He planned the cross. And that's why He took on flesh and came to earth to die on the cross. Those prophets of Baal, They shed their blood trying to get their God's attention and win their God's favor. Our God spilled His own blood to assure us of our forgiveness and that access to Him is open to us. When we sing, five bleeding wounds He bears, received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive them, oh forgive, they cried. It isn't as if Jesus is showing his nail-pierced hands so that the Father does not forget the cross. The Father will never forget the cross. The cross was his perfect plan of salvation. Such is his great love for us. And we are accepted by God through Christ. That's the kind of Father you have. Does he sound like a good father to you? And so we have great confidence to come to him in prayer. And when we pray, we join Jesus, who's praying with us and for us. And so why is prayer a duty for us? Something we neglect or that we would rather not do. 
when we are in right relationship with the Father. The very thing Jesus died to make possible, you should not be able to keep us from praying. Do you believe that? We're eager to be in the presence, not of an angry God who is against us or who must be manipulated into helping us or prevented by Jesus from striking us. He's our Father. He's good. So we can and we must pray. Let's do that now. Father, help us to be in right relationship with you. I pray that you would flood our hearts and our minds with the truth of your word. It tells the story of Jesus, how you, Jesus, came to earth, died for us, rose again, now the right hand of the Father. We need you, Spirit of God, to prevent us from thinking of you wrongly. We need you to erase the memories of or the, the current activity of our fathers, Lord, that would distract us from you or make us think that you are, are like them because we're, we're not perfect and we don't love perfectly, but you do, Lord. You are the perfect father. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would reveal the perfection of our Father to us. That you would keep us in right relationship with our Father. So that we long to be in his presence in prayer. Lord, we are filled with hope when we think about what our church could be like. And what our city could be like. And what our world could be like if we stayed in right relationship with you, and if we prayed, Lord, how you might respond. Let's ponder it. Ponder you so that we pray. In Jesus' name, we do pray. Amen.